So, uh, before we start talking about the history of Israel, I want to talk a little bit about the importance and significance on the spiritual sense uh, to the Jewish people. So let's start off with Genesis. Uh, and we know that the Torah, and we mentioned this a few times already, uh, is instructive. Thus, the, 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 the Torah is not giving us meaningless or needless or non-essential or extraneous or sorry, superfluous or not necessary or irrelevant dialogue. Close the door here. Sorry. The door's not giving us... Yeah. Close the door. Get the doors closed. So the giving us extra unnecessary information. So we have Genesis. You open up Genesis, you find a lot of stories. So of course you find the story of Genesis and the story of Noah and the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and obviously the significance and we learn a lot from that. But Rashi and the commentator, the first commentator, or the first verse in the Torah, uh, the uh, chief and preeminent commentator on the Torah... Uh, he asks a basic question. He says, hey, listen, if the Torah is about instructions, let's start where the instructions start. So indeed, there are instructions in Genesis. There are mitzvahs. The word for an instruction is a mitzvah. Uh, there are mitzvahs in Genesis. In fact, there are three of them. But besides for those three, there's no other instructions, or at least not ones that are tangible, uh, that are like one of the 613 mitzvahs that are there on the rest of the Torah. Uh, by contrast, uh, Leviticus has hundreds. So what's the deal? Why do you have to write all of Genesis? You know, Write the three mitzvahs of Genesis and start from Exodus where the mitzvahs start. That's his question. And he says that the goal of writing Genesis and the whole story of creation and Adam and, and Noah and Abraham and that whole story is to, is to show that the Jewish people have a legitimate claim in Israel. That's it. The entire Genesis, like 20%, even more than that, 25% of the Torah is written to solidify and legitimize the claim that Jewish people have on Israel. So that, if we had any doubt as to the importance that Israel places, or, or the place that Israel has, and the importance and the centrality of Israel in, in Jewish life, uh, that would uh, go a long way to vanquish that misconception. Now, what's so special about Israel? Uh, so Israel is kind of demonstrative of, of the Jewish manifesto. What's the Jewish manifesto? We have other manifestos written by Jews, most notably the Communist Manifesto, but that's not the Jewish Manifesto. Being authored by a Jew doesn't mean that it's Jewish, right? So what's the Jewish Manifesto? What's the idea that, that, that's so groundbreaking and earth-shattering about Judaism, uh, uh, perhaps more than, uh, more than any other one idea? And that's the idea of, of spirituality, of, of, of holiness. They say, Rabbi, holiness. A lot of, lot, lot of religions tout the idea of holiness. Uh, but the, the bridge that Judaism creates between the physical world and the spiritual world, wherein it's not uh, too distinct uh, um, or, or very uh, black and white, where there's, there's, there's the, the pure uh, and, and the holy, and then there's the profane and, and, and you know, the, uh, that, that, is, that that is not holy. Rather, uh, Judaism espouses the idea of taking something that is simple and, and physical and transient and elevating it. Like the day of Shabbat. So what do we do in Shabbat? Shabbat's, Shabbat's a mitzvah. What, what, it described the spiritual nature of Shabbat. Okay, well, you sit down and you have a, a fantastic five-course meal. You drink wine, you got to have meat, all these mitzvahs. Of, has to be, really? That's spiritual? You know, and then what do you do? And then you sit around with your family and you have a good time. How is that spiritual? What's well, spiritual? The Jewish sense of spirituality, wherein we take the physical, we uplift it, 
and we elevate it and we take something that was simple and we uh, and make it special, make it holy. That's a mitzvah, that's an example. Uh, but that extends to everything. Like we have uh, an impure body. So, so we start off, we got a pure soul, an impure body. So what's the goal of life? The goal of life is to take the body, which is plain and physical, which could be, you know, could be wicked or could be not remarkable and not spiritual in any way, the complete antithesis of the soul. And what do we do? We take the body and we uplift it. We make it great and we make it spiritual, we make it holy. Uh, so that's the Jewish manifesto at large. Uh, but Israel, what's Israel? You, know, you go to Israel and you say, okay, this is a spiritual land. This is the land of the Almighty. This is the land of the Jewish people. This is the Holy Land. Now what do you see? Mountains and valleys and rocks and deserts. You see a physical land and, and beaches, some nice beaches, some less nice beaches. It's a regular land. Like it's some parts are very are very dry and some parts are you know, mountainous and some parts are very fertile. And it's, it's a land. It seems to be a land like, unlike any, any, any other. But Israel was infused with a spiritual nature wherein the land itself, despite being physical, has spirituality baked into it. Just like the temple. What's the temple? It's a building. Oh, okay, what's so special about a building? Well, it's a building that even though it's physical, but it's infused, uh, with, it's elevated to being spiritual. You know, the idea of, of God living in our presence or existing in our presence. What does that mean? Once again, this bridge of these two vastly different wor- worlds. So Israel is kind of um, a manifestation of, of the spiritual nature, physical manifestation of the spiritual nature. Now we know that Israel is also a location where many of the mitzvahs can only be fulfilled in Israel. There's at least 130 mitzvahs that are only applicable to Israel. These are agricultural laws. These are sacrificial laws. These are ritualistic laws. Many laws that apply only in Israel. Clearly, the importance or the the goal of our life, our religion, is centered in Israel. Otherwise, you wouldn't have 16% or 17%, whatever the number is, of the mitzvahs apply only in Israel. Uh, Additionally, we find... Another just cool little tidbit about Israel, that the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we know they studied Torah. Abraham kept the entire Torah, uh, says the Midrash. Uh, We know that they kept the entire Torah, right? Abraham prayed, Isaac prayed, Jacob prayed. They kept the laws, even the laws that were given afterwards. How that worked? Very good question. How could Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob gain access to information that only came post-facto? That's a very good question. Uh, let's put that on hold maybe for time at the, end, at the end. Once we pass BB, maybe we'll bring that back if, if we have enough time. But either way, they kept Torah. They kept Torah. So let me ask you a question. According to Torah law, is someone allowed to marry two sisters, yes or no? What? Is, according to Torah law, is one man allowed to marry two sisters? Yes. Wow. Absolutely not. Absolutely Wait, isn't not. Isn't there a caveat if he dies? Yeah. If one of the daughter, one of the sisters died, but let's say, let's say no, one no, of them, if one of her husbands died, isn't he obligated to? Marry yeah, her well, daughter? that's that's if someone's brother died. Right. I'm talking about one man marrying two sisters. Two sisters. Two sisters. Right. Aside from the right, right. That's right. But let's say if someone is someone allowed to marry multiple wives by biblical law, yes. But even even by, according to biblical law, a man is not allowed to marry two sisters. Yeah, right. In fact, it's a verse. It's a straight up verse. A man is not allowed to marry two sisters. Absolutely clear. Who do we know that transgressed that? Anybody knows? Um, Booyah. Jacob married. He married Rachel and he married Leah. Two sisters. What's the deal? If Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob kept the entire Torah, how come Jacob um, seems to have transgressed that by marrying two sisters? It's very clear. It's, right? Now, who did Jacob marry first? He married Leah first. 
Thus, Rebecca, uh, Rivka, I'm sorry, uh, Rachel, I made something with the Rachel in the. Uh, uh, so Rachel was the one who encroached on, on the prohibition, right? Because first he was married to Leah, and then he married her sister. So who was the one who was first? And that was no problem. That was Leah. Who was the one who was second that made the problem? That was Rachel. What's the deal? So the commentators always say that even they, they say that even though the forefathers observed the entire Torah in, uh, the, the entire Torah before it was given only in Israel. Once again, we see the idea of, of mitzvahs being applicable only in Israel. Thus, says the Ramban Nachmanides, one of the great commentators in the Torah, he says, "Who died?" So Jacob married his two his really four wives uh, outside of Israel, and that's not a problem because he, he kept the entire Torah, but only once one only provided that he's in Israel. He gets back to Israel. Well, then one of his wives died on the doorstep of Israel, and that's Rachel. And she had she was the one who had to die because she was the one who encroached and infringed upon the prohibition of married two sisters. Thus, she had to die because he can't be he can't, he, he can't be in Israel with two wives, which is a crazy idea. But either way, we see just the thing I want to pull out from or that. Two wives. Exactly. Yes. 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 Uh, what, I want, what, I, what I want to pull out, of course, that is a, a very interesting discussion that we could really get tangled up with. But if we do so, we'll never meet Bibi um, or Sharon or Menachem Begin or whoever. Uh, but that also shows the importance of Israel. We're in, you know, for the forefathers, they kept the Torah only in Israel. Uh, another example here of, of how Israel is... Um, is kind of essentially different than the rest of the of the of the countries. Now we know, once again, another. I feel like this class, by the way, a quick disclaimer. This class is going to be we're going to be dealing like literally every five sentences to be its own class. I assure you, we're going to cover all of Bible. Yes. Okay. So, uh, so I'm like thinking, oh, I really should stop down and settle down and like like talk about this at great at great length. But then we jeopardize our goal here. Uh, but the um, there's this idea of of the physical world, the entire universe, every person, every entity, every thing, every shrub of grass, uh, despite being physical, needs to have a spiritual element to it to give it vitality. We don't believe that God created the world and then went on vacation, we're an autopilot. Right? We believe God is continually sustaining the world. Right? Creator, sustainer, and even supervisor for humans. Uh, that goes on individual level, individualistic level, but also on a national or communal level. Thus, we find in Jewish literature discussions about angels that are oversights or conduits or channels between God's influence and vitality that he's giving to the world and a particular nation. So if you ever wonder why people from different countries seem to have different, you know, stereotypes, so whether or not they're generalizations or not, that's also something we could argue about. But either way, um, according to Jewish philosophy, we would say that the reason why people from different countries are different, you know, they have different qualities is because they have different influences of, 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 of these angels that are the conduits of their lifeblood, of their spiritual lifeblood, that gives them life, that gives them vitality, gives them uh, existence. However, Israel, we're told, the eyes of God are constantly on Israel. Israel has no filter. Hashtag, no filter. Right? Israel is the country that has direct life from God. So when you're in Israel, you know that there's no intermediary. You know, we find in the Talmud great stories about the great rabbi, Rabbi Zeru, who comes to Israel. You know what he says? Mm-hmm. Great rabbi shows up at the doorstep of Israel. He says, he starts praying. What's he, what, would, what would the first prayer that you would do when he got to Israel? 
What would be the first prayer that you would say? I don't know. Shema. I don't know what you would say. I, maybe the Shema. I don't know. His first prayer was, let me forget all of my Torah. <laughs> what? Rabbi, that's what you do? The first, the, imagine the rabbi who spent his whole life studying Torah in Babylon, and now he's like, oh, when I got to Israel, let's forget all my Torah? Who needs Torah here? Let's go give me this, you know, give me my, my surf, my surfboard? No. So the Talmud says is that because he said there's no Torah like the Torah of Israel. The Torah of Israel is like a straight, unfiltered Torah. I don't want to deal with the Babylonian Torah. I don't want to waste my time with that. And now I want the high quality, A++. I want to have Israel Torah. I want to forget everything, all the rest of the Torah that I had. I want to start from scratch. Pretty, pretty incredible idea. Uh, we know the Jewish people spent a total of 49 days after the exodus from Egypt to prepare for getting the Torah. Yet they spent a 40 years in the wilderness preparing to go into Israel. So clearly, even though this is something so important, so spiritual, there, ha- there had to be such a, a tremendous preparation and process to prime the Jewish people uh, for them to be ready to go into Israel. And what, what changes, which, which, is, which is interesting, um, something to think about at least, a uh, point to ponder, uh, is that the state of the Jewish people during these 40 years in the wilderness is a state that no other nation has replicated. Um, you know, they ate food that came down from the sky in little parachutes, like little, little TV dinners that appeared on everyone's front door every day for 40 years, you know, for millions of people. It's just insane, you know. We're talking about billions upon billions of of of, of servings of meals uh, for a nation. They were surrounded by you know by a, a, a mountain flattening clouds that also killed predators and whatnot. But during the day and at night, with this pillar of fire, and they have Moses who's directly talking to God, whose face is as bright as the sun. You have to wear a mask. Like they're studying Torah from Moses. You know everything that they have is supernatural. You know that's the kind of life that they're living. Now what happens? They get to Israel. What happened, what happened to that spiritual, super, supernatural kind of spiritual existence that they have? It all ends. Which is an interesting thing. Like, how are they being prepared for life in Israel in this kind of uh, cocoon that uh, that they had with Moses and kind of, you know, they're, they're doing all these, you know, spiritual and supernatural things. And then they come to Israel and it kind of almost ends. You know, they have still... You know, Joshua, and they have still, you know, obviously they have prophets and they have these great leaders. But either way, like, food ain't just dropping down from heaven. Now you, you got you to work the land. You got to deal with some of the natural. You don't can't just go to the rock and knock the rock and you have water for the rock for an entire nation. Like, that, that, that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, which I think is, is something very interesting. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know what the meaning is, but that was the method of preparation. That was the, the lifestyle that the Jewish people had during these 40 years in the desert, uh, in the wilderness, um, traveling from place to place, you know, li- you know, stopping off in the total of 44 different encampments over 40 years. Sometimes they would stay there and they get there and settle down and then a month later they leave and sometimes they settle down and they're, they're there for three years and four years and it's just, it's all random and, you know, or it's not random, but it's, uh, you know, you don't have no preparation. Suddenly, you, you know, you kind of, oh, you're like, you like Houston? Fantastic. Today, right now, pick up your badge, we're moving. You know, we're going to, I don't know, uh, Tyler, Texas. All right, let's go. Pick up your badge. Let's go. Uh, a very interesting kind of state that the Jewish people had. Of course, Moses dies on the doorstep of Israel. Uh, this great struggle that happened to Moses and 
God, Moses is praying 515 times. God says, stop praying. If you pray one more time, I'm going to have to acquiesce to you, but I'm not going to destroy the world. Moses stops praying. He gets buried on, on Har Nevo. And, okay, fantastic. Joshua is the new leader. They enter Israel. And what do they find? What kind of welcome sign is there on the, on the doorstep of Israel? Welcome. Oh, yeah. Uh, this was not a hospitable environment. This is now the land. Remember, the land of Israel is called Israel, but we call it Israel because that's what it's called today. It has had multiple names, like uh, the British Mandate that preceded the land of Israel, the, the state of Israel. They called it Palestine, and uh, before that, it was uh, you know it was under the Ottomans, and uh, it had names in the Bible like Canaan. Okay, it was called the land of Canaan. Uh, it was called Judah as well. Judah and Israel was also was a biblical name for the land of Israel. Either way, when we, when we say the word Israel, we mean Israel as in what we call today the state of Israel. Or the area that's the state of Israel is uh, occupying, not occupying, it's a bad word, but is uh, existing on. Uh, so they find seven different nations, a total of 31, seven different tribes, or 31 different uh, city-states, and they begin a very long and very arduous and very painful uh, conquest. And uh, unfortunately, this, uh, this takes a lot longer than they would have anticipated. And in fact, Jerusalem is only captured hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later. And the, uh, David captures Jerusalem. That was the last holdout. Uh, so they, they move into Israel. They find all this hostile forces. They begin a, a battle of conquest. Uh, eventually, uh, they capture the majority of Israel. We call today Israel. Uh, they divide the land. That's a big deal as well. Many of the Jewish people decide opt to stay on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Thus, biblical Israel is in fact much bigger than modern-day state of Israel because it, it, it goes uh, the you know, Trans-Jordan area as well. Uh, the names of the tribes are linked to the land. So thus, uh, uh, Judah, we know uh, Judah was the name of Israel uh, at one point. We'll talk about how that happened. But that the tribe of Judah is uh, the location uh, um, allotted to the tribe of Judah is what's called Judah. The tribe of Dan, the tribe of Naphtali, the tribe of Asher, all the names of the tribes of Israel. They were each were a portion, of, uh, a, a part of Israel, uh, and that part of Israel assumed that name. Uh, even though they captured uh, a lot of Israel, they still had some hostile forces in the land, most notably the Philistines. It's important to hold that name in your head because the modern-day Palestinians... They hijacked the name from Palestine, which hijacked the name from Hadrian, which hijacked the name from these original Philistines. These were a group of people that were coastal. Uh, seems like they arrived, uh, you know, they were seafaring people that arrived from Greece or that area, some island or whatnot. And they came and they were uh, a thorn in the side of the Jewish people for hundreds of years. Constant sparring. We read the, read the stories of the Bible, the book of Judges. You find a lot of skirmishes. Uh, that it that happened between the Jewish people and the Philistines, uh, great titanic, titanic battles of Samson and Saul and whatnot. Uh, but either way, this is a time period right after the entrance and the conquest and the division of Israel. This is a time period that's typically marked, you know, if we are to take just quick, big brush strokes over 500 years or 400 years of, of Jewish history, it's one that we have no teams. We have uh, uh, judges. That's the time period of judges. Of course, we... Uh, we're a little bit ahead of the pack. You know, we had a, even one of the judges, the judge was the leader, was like the de facto boss. Uh, like Joshua was a judge. And, you know, Samson was a judge. You know, and of course, De- uh, Deborah was, the, you know, we had a female judge. You know, it's a meritocracy. Whoever is the most, uh, the most 
capable was the leader. You know, it's like Israel had a prime minister, a female prime minister in the in the sixties. You know, uh, I- interestingly, uh, but it's a time where there are no kings, so there's no monarchy, and it's also a time period where, unfortunately, obviously it had its ups and downs. But there were times of of anarchy and chaos. In fact, the very last verse of the book of Judges kind of sums up the book by saying that during that time there was no king and ish Everyone did whatever was righteous in his eye. Everyone comes on his. It was each man to his own. It was the wild, wild west. Uh, and then, of course, we have the tragic episode of the concubine of Giva. We'll skip that. Google it. Crazy story, uh, where um, where uh, the tribe of Benjamin was almost entirely decimated. Uh, yeah, very, very tragic story of 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 of, um, of internal infighting and kind of it's also reflective of the kind of state that the Jewish people were in at that time. And then the last of the prophets is a fellow by the name of Samuel. Well, Samuel is a very critical uh, individual in Jewish history. Samuel is this great prophet, and he is the one. Obviously, you read about him in the book of Samuel, Samuel one and Samuel two. Uh, he is the one who is going to uh, who is going to kind of change the leadership structure of the Jewish people uh, from being judges to be having kings. And he is going to anoint the very first king of Israel, a fellow by the name of Saul. So you have Samuel, you have Saul, and you have Solomon. These are three different people. Samuel is the prophet. He anoints Saul, uh, the king. Who is this guy? Saul. Saul is this majestic warrior, head and shoulders taller than everyone else. It's really handsome, charismatic, like the prototypical charismatic leader that, the, that everyone wants. The best Torah scholar, the best warrior. Everything. He's got it all. He's got the complete package of what we would typically assume as being the leadership profile. Unfortunately, he makes some critical mistakes and his uh, position, despite him being still considering himself and the nation somewhat considering him still as being the king, but he loses, he loses kind of God's support. And even though he has the crown on his head, but God says, you know, Samuel tells him, in God's eyes, you're not the king anymore. Uh, that was the story of him sparing the women and the livestock and the king of, 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 uh, of the um, Amalekites. Now, Amalek is the arch foe of the Jewish people. And uh, Samuel instructs Saul, I want you to make sure you obliterate any memory of Amalek. That means killing uh, all the men, all the women, all the children. But Rabbi, how do you kill children? They're all Hitlers. That's how you do it. Okay? Uh, that they're all Hitlers. Kill them all. Kill the animals too. And he didn't do it, and, and, that's, and, that, and he lost his position. Samuel says, you're not king anymore. We're going to find a new king. So he goes around, hopping around town to town, and then he finds this wonderful family, the family of the of a fellow by the name of Jesse. Jesse is one of the remarkable people uh, in, 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 in piety. He has these seven sons, and Samuel says, what's the one guy? No, not this one, not this one, not this one. All, he's like, oh, that's it, none of them. What's the deal? He says, well, there's this clown in the backyard, this little gingy, little ginger guy that, you know, uh, he's, he's an afterthought. He's certainly not the right guy. And they bring him out, and David has got his hair all tussled up, and he says, ah, this is the king. He takes the oil, points it, pours it on his head. By the way, I say the word anointing twice already. The way uh, kings and the way actually Kohanes were, uh, were inaugurated was by pouring oil on their head. Uh, thus, the name Mashiach or Mashuach uh, is uh, from the term anointed. The word anointed in Hebrew is Mashuach. Thus, Mashiach or Messiah 
And even uh, the Greek word Christos, or Christ, comes from the word Mashiach, which means which doesn't mean anything more than being anointed or being a king. Uh, so, David is now the king. Of course, the entire nation considers Saul to be the king. Uh, and uh, it becomes pretty clear to Saul that David is a threat. We have the horrible fighting that existed between David's camp and Saul's camp. And we have David slaying the Goliath. And Saul tells, Saul tells tells David, you know what? I want you to go get me a hundred Philistine uh, uh, foreskins. So, and with the hopes that David is going to go into battle and try to gather all these foreskins, and he's going to get killed. And in fact, David goes back and says, okay, here's 200. I'll get you that 200. Uh, and he says, and then therefore I'll marry, I'll, and Saul, Saul tells him, okay, you give me, you give me the hundred foreskins, I'll let you marry my daughter, Michal. So he brings him the 200 of the foreskins, and, he, and Saul, Saul says, oh gosh, he didn't die. You know what? Scrap that plan. Then Michal, he marries to someone else, and it's a whole disaster, but he's really married to David because he married him off to David. Um, uh, you know, Saul and his army are tracking down David, and Saul has to go use the restroom, and he's in the cave, and David's there in the cave with him, and he cuts out his clothing to show him. All these great stories that happened. Uh, eventually, uh, um, despite the fact that there's somewhat of a civil war system on the Jewish people, David's camp and Saul's camp, Saul is cornered by a group of Philistines, and he commits suicide. Uh, David is told the news, and everyone's expecting David to be jubilant, and David tears his clothing, is all sad, because Saul was a great man. And even though Saul wanted him dead, dead or alive, Saul wanted him, but uh, he wept and mourned for, for, uh, for Saul. David had his uh, life of challenges. Of course, his own son tried to uh, overthrow him uh, with the coup of Shalom, exactly. Uh, but either way, David, uh, and subsequently the kingdom of his son Solomon, that's going to mark the high point of the Jewish people. Um, I would say maybe um, ever. Why? They had a righteous king. They had complete control of all, of all of Israel. When David captures Jerusalem, he buys Temple Mount. Israel is now kind of in its most stable uh, 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 position that it's ever been. Uh, so we have righteous leadership. We have, um, we have righteous monarchy. And we have prosperity and stability and in fact, this was such a good time for the Jewish people that a lot of Gentiles says, you know what? I want to come join. A lot of people says, ah, maybe can I convert? Where's the application? How do I, how do I, how do I, how do I send my application? So, and then that was the one time in, in Jewish history where converts were not accepted because there was such a risk of, of insincere conversions that they said, okay, well, let's just hold off on this. In fact, those 80 years, there were no conversions. Um, very interesting. Kind of a, an, an insight into the quality of life that existed for the Jewish people at that time in Israel uh, and um, and and why it was so appealing for uh, for the na- for their neighbors. Uh, now, David doesn't get to build the temple. Solomon builds the temple on Temple Mount, and that temple is going to be the epicenter of the Jewish world and Jewish life for um, basically even till now, till today, till today, the center of the Jewish consciousness. Even though, and for the majority of the time or at least for a major part of the time, at least when the Jewish people are in Israel, it's a center of Jewish leadership as well. It's the capital. It's, it's where the Supreme Court is. That is the center of Jewish life. That's where the pilgrimage, pil, pilgrimages were done every year, multiple times. The entire nation of, 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 of the entire people, even those living outside of Israel, would come and join their brothers and the brethren during the holidays. Uh, Jerusalem became this, this, you know, it, it just you know became like, a, you know, it was like, Say what I wanted to say. So, became it's like a pilgrimage town. Everyone just, everyone just, you know, swarms to Jerusalem. It's a crazy party a couple times a year. 
Uh, but we find a few patterns here that I want to I want to stress because we'll come revisit them later. So we look at Saul as being this great promise, this great hero, but unfortunately, he 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 is not the model of a Jewish leader. We find again and again that the ones, the people that are successful Jewish leaders, are the ones that you know come out of nowhere. You know, uh, we look at even Moses. You know, Moses. Where did Moses grow up? He grew up in the house of Pharaoh, like. He grew up in the house of Pharaoh, and he's going to be the one who's going to take us out of Egypt. Yeah. He's going to be the one who gives us the Torah. It's not who you would expect. You would expect someone with a nice family name, you know, with a nice, you know, pedigree and some, you know, uh, you know, the marquee, uh, the marquee individual who's charismatic. Moses has got this. He's got this stutter. He, he's half Egyptian. You know, it, it, it's a weird profile of of a leader. But that's what we find again with David. His own his own family said this guy's not worthy to be the king. Uh, we'll see this again and again. Uh, maybe, well, likely. But either way, uh, it's it's and and Saul, who perhaps arguably ought to be the model of 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 of, of a leader. Well, he he him that that didn't work out. That's number one. Number two, uh, we find um, an episode that would seem to be quite uh, quite I guess, embarrassing, or you know, it's it's a scandalous. And that's the story of David and Bathsheba. You read the story on face value, it seems like David kind of hijacks this woman. He really likes her. He's, you know, he sees her bathing in the nude and he chases after her for miles and he sends her husband off to war to die. And that's the story. Uh, now, of course, this is in itself, the Talmud makes it very clear David did not sin. Either way, whatever happened, this is still not, this seems like a black eye on the, on, on the individual, but also on, you know, the progeny. And who's the progeny of David and Solomon? Well, that's... Well, that, I'm sorry, David and, and Bathsheba. That's Solomon, and that's Messiah, and that's the you know that's the that's the that's the line of Jewish royalty. That's Hillel, you know. That's Rabbi Gamliel. This is the family of Jewish royalty. Uh, yet, you kind of look at the story. You say, wait a minute, it seems like a scandal, you know. And in fact, it didn't it didn't start there. Even before that, uh, Judah and Tamar, his daughter-in-law, gets mm-hmm. dressed up like a prostitute, and she seduces him, and and they have a baby together, and and. And then he says, "Oh, let's execute her." Let's, let me say that does not seem to be a story uh, of of a progenation of of a leader of the Jewish people. Yet it is. And Boaz and Ruth is another example of that. Once again, it's another pattern of Jewish of Jewish history, wherein uh, salvation and redemption doesn't necessarily come from the uh, most expected source. In fact, usually from the least expected source. Just hold that thought. Either way, so uh, from now on, after uh, the Davidic line is established, all legitimate kings of Israel are going to be direct descendants of David and Solomon. We're going to meet our fair share of illegitimate kings. But in Jewish philosophy, Jewish royalty emerges from the house of David. Uh, Solomon dies after a reign of 40 years. Solomon assumes leadership at the age of 12. Bad thing, not a bad bar mitzvah present, right? Uh, and he dies at the age of 52, very young. And uh, his son, whose name is Rechavam, he becomes the king. And he makes, unfortunately, some very bad decisions at the beginning of, uh, of, his, of his leadership. Uh, and um, if you look at kind of the, the structure, so you have Jerusalem in southern Israel, uh, and that's where the center of everything is. And then you have a lot of Jews living in northern Israel, and they feel kind of out of the loop, you know, and they feel like, well, we, we don't have the temple, we don't live in the temple's neighborhood, and we, we're not part of the, 
it's kind of like the inside Washington versus outside Washington. Like, you know, the people making the decisions are not kind of one of us, you know, they're not living the real life like we are. So that tension existed, and, and Rehavam decides, you know, we're going to make punitive taxation on the people of the north. So he goes, and they say, you know what, really, you're going to tax us, we're going we're gonna to rebel, we're going to secede. So eventually there's a, a split, uh, and now there's a northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. We have in the southern kingdom of Judah, you have the temple, obviously, you have King Rehavam, the son of Solomon, and in the northern kingdom, we meet a, another very important, unfortunately tragic character, in Jewish history, of Yeravim, Yeravim Benevat. Uh, and he's one of the people that the Mishnah calls out by name as saying has no portion of the world to come because he introduces a, uh, a, a lifestyle of idolatry uh, to the Jews of the north. And the Jews say, you know what, we want to go to the kingdom of the south and go join the pilgrimage. It's the holiday, it's Passover, it's Yom Kippur. He says, ah, oh, you can't go. And in fact, you know what we'll do? We'll build a temple here. Let's build a temple. You know, but let's not build a, let's not build a Jewish temple. Let's put a temple to, to, the, to the idol, to Baal. What do you all say about that, huh? So eventually, that northern kingdom of, uh, of Israel has this death spiral that unfortunately, over its tenure, over, over, over the time of, of that kingdom, uh, all the kings and all the people get corrupted. And eventually, what happens when they've been corrupted for that long? God says, okay, you're done with. And the aggressor in the form of Sancheirev and the Assyrians, they come in and they capture the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, when the Assyrians, the mighty empire of that time, we're talking about the year five, uh, the 6th century before the Common Era, their method of capture uh, was to capture a nation and then to exile, to scatter them. So thus, the 10 northern, kingdom, northern tribes, if you hear, ever hear the term 10 tribes, 10 lost tribes of Israel... That came from Sancheir of taking these Jews that lived there and spreading them out across the globe and putting in their place other people that were not Jewish. Uh, those are the Samaritans that we know from later stories. Either way, Sancheir makes his trek south and he surrounds Jerusalem and he put, lays a siege in Jerusalem, but eventually uh, 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 they all die and the kingdom of Judah is spared. Uh, but this is once again another great pattern in Israel. We're in God will tolerate wickedness and idolatry to a point. Uh, once there is disunity, once there is infighting, once there is schisms, once there is factionalism, <laughs> once there's sin, okay, well then, let's say you're living on borrowed time. And you might have a hundred years um, uh, where God will allow you to, to, to continue to exist in that state, uh, but then you're gone. And you know what happened? The Northern Kingdom descended into sin, and they had 100, 150 years, I don't know exact numbers, uh, of, of existence, and then they're gone. Where are they now? Talmud says, well, maybe they're not, may, may never, they may never, ever, may never even be coming back. Either way, um, the southern kingdom of Judah is now what we have. The Jews the Jewish people we have today, uh, uh, they are descendants of the southern kingdom of Israel. They outlast the northern kingdom, sorry, the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom, they outlast them uh, a couple of hundred years until the Babylonians, who are now the world's mighty empire, and they, under the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar, not the, uh, not the, uh, the spaceship from the Matrix, but the individual, uh, and Nebuzaradan. These guys have such similar names, like Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuzaradan. Get mixed up with these names. They come, they destroy the, fir- the first temple, they send the Jewish people east in the exile called the Babylonian exile. Uh, but first, what happens, they send 
10,000, I think we might have mentioned this in the history classes, 10,000 of the best and brightest. They establish a vibrant Jewish society in Babylon. The Jewish people all move to Babylon. They're crying on the, you know, on the, on the shores of, right, uh, on, on the rivers of Babylon. They're crying, and, you know, the prophet said, listen, you guys should if you, had you repented, this wouldn't have happened. Either way, 70 years later, Ezra takes a group of 42,000 people and brings them back to Israel, and they start rebuilding the temple. Right, right, exactly. After what? 70 years. 70 years, yes, yeah, 70 years, and you have the other story of Purim in the interim as well. So, Israel is now going to be a Jewish homeland once again. However, the vast majority, and the uh, at least, and, and also the, the high society of the Jewish people is no longer in Israel. Ezra took the clowns, kind of the dredges of society, with him. But the, the brightest minds, the, the greatest leaders, not the greatest leaders, but, the, but the, 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 the institutions, the greatest institutions, uh, the scholars, they all remained in Babylon. And that would continue uh, for the next thousand years. You would have a dual uh, communities of the, Jew, the people in Israel uh, and then the people in Babylon. So even though you have the Second Temple being rebuilt, it does not have the same grandeur and the same allure and appeal as the first temple, it's on a much smaller scale. The miracles that were ever present in the first temple are no longer present. There's going to be corruption in the second temple. There's going to be uh, uh, the, the, the office of the high priesthood is going to get corrupted. It's going to be sold to the highest bidder. So if you're a Kohen who really would love to do the service on Yom Kippur, say, okay, I'll, I'll pony up, I don't know, 25 grand and give it to the local, the local boss and I'll do it. You know, it's the first temple you find that over 410 years, you have 18 different high priests. Where in, uh, in the second temple, 420 years, so only 10 years longer, you have more than 300 high priests. They went through them like, you know, like, uh, like uh, yeah, like hotcakes, okay, hotcakes. Uh, and another, uh, you know, Ezra, Ezra is presented as a very pivotal character because he presided over a very pivotal time in, in Jewish life. Uh, so prophets are gone, first temple's gone, Jewish people are splintered, well, not splintered necessarily ideologically, but they're splintered geographically. The vast majority of Jewish people are living outside of Israel. Uh, and the temple now is, is being rebuilt, and, you know, and that's wonderful, but it's not quite the same. It's, it's, a, different, it's a different reality. Uh, he convenes a, uh, an assembly called the Great Assembly, right? Uh, or the men of the Great Assembly, 120 uh, scholars, and great leaders, uh, that are going to establish all of the rules, rules, but also the uh, appropriate practices for a Judaism uh, in uh, in a nonprofit environment. Um, and that's going to be a uh, critical uh, critical time period. Wherein, if you were to analyze the state of the Jewish people, okay, they just had an exile and they're traveling back and forth, and they no more kings and no more this and no more that. Temple trying to rebuild it, but they have to stop and they have to rebuild it again. And right, right, you would say, well, okay, this is over. The great, the great experiment that was the Jewish people, nine hundred years, fantastic, but now it's done. Uh, but we have great visionary leaders like Ezra, and later on, we'll see six hundred years later, we'll meet a fellow by the name of Rabbi Judah the Prince, who once again oversaw a revamping, so to speak, of Jewish focus, uh, which is tremendous foresight that we see in hindsight. Uh, how he. Uh, foresaw what the challenges are going to be for the Jewish people, and he directed and guided the nation 
to be able to exist in this, in a, you know, in compromising situations. And that's why, you know, we're still around today. You know, we're around 3,300 years after our inception, despite us being small and being uh, continuously uh, uh, being uh, 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 marginalized in every which way and persecuted. And, you know, we know that the history of, uh, of, of Jewish life and has been, has been, uh, been very, uh, very, very painful. We haven't had very hospitable neighbors and friends, but we're still around. You know, and one of the one of the reasons is because we have great leaders, great visionaries who are at times of of, of critical challenges are able to make decisions with tremendous foresight that are going to preserve the Jewish people uh, 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 to exist. So we have now uh, Jewish people are in Israel, but really the soul of the Jewish people is still in Babylon. But the temple's being rebuilt, and it's, you know, it's still pretty good. We still have a temple, but we have no more prophets. Uh, now the role of the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Israel, is going to take an expanded role. You know? uh, the, the, the rabbinic leadership, the Torah leadership, uh, is going to be highlighted in a major way. So we're in Israel, and we're going to be now filtering through uh, a bunch of different uh, uh, empires. So we had already the Assyrians, we had the Babylonians, we had... Persians, uh, and now we're going to meet the Greeks. So about a, about a hundred, uh, about twenty five years after they built the temple, uh, Alexander the Great begins his massive conquest of the whole world, uh, and he stops off in Israel and uh, he, he captures Israel. So we're living under Greek control, uh, and that's going to remain like that until the Hasmonean uh, re- revolt of the year one sixty seven before the Common Era. In fact, the years of um, Alexander, I think he came to Israel year 332 or something like that before the Common Era. So for the next 150 years, we're going to be living under Greek control. Now, Greek control, it's important to realize that there's different Greek empires. There's the Macedonian Greek Empire, there's the Assyrian Greek Empire, otherwise known as the Seleucid Empire, there's the Egyptian Greek Empire, which otherwise known as the Ptolemy. Uh, now, why are there so many different Greek empires? Because Alexander, like we said, captured the entire world, and he dies at the age of uh, 30 or something like that, or 25, whatever he was. I mean, I think it was 32, from some exotic disease. And this great personality that was able to capture it all and maintain control over it all, well, now he dies and everyone's jockeying for position of who, you know. So eventually, three different parts of the empire are uh, each emerge as their own empire. Uh, like we said, the Macedonian Empire in, in Greek proper, uh, the Egyptian or Ptolemy Emperor, uh, Empire in, in Egypt or North Africa, and then the Assyrian or Seleucid Empire in Assyria. Uh, and who's right in between all that? Israel. Israel. So for the next 150 years, we're going to be sandwiched. And the infighting that's going to exist between primarily the Ptolemy and the Seleucid Greek kingdoms, we're always going to be caught in crossfire, which is an, another great pattern. Like, you know, you have 150 years of crusades, and who's right in the middle between the Egyptians, between the Muslims and the Christians fighting? Us. You know, we're right there in the crossfire. Uh, we'll see that again and again. But this is another great example. Now, when the Greeks captured Israel and they captured the entire world, they brought with them not only conquest, but they also brought with them what's called Greek culture. Who knows the name for Greek culture? That's absolutely right. So suddenly, now there's bathhouses and gymnasiums and whatnot creeping into the Jewish life. And while the Jews and the Greeks have a lot in common, you know, we're super into philosophy, very intelligent, very literate, you know, have universal visions, you know, but they're pagans, and they say we have 30,000 gods. And we talk about this one invisible god, and, you know, we don't really have much overlap in, in our the, the, theology. 
but they they had an attitude of let's foist upon our new subjects our philosophy. So that uh, that created a major major problem for the Jewish people. You have Jews that became Hellenists. You have other Jews that became what's called Sadducees. These different groups of Jews that are abandoning the mainstream, the traditional Jewish perspective, and adopting more secularized uh, Jewish attitudes as well. You know, like non-Jewish names became a big deal. Uh, when the Jews start, first started naming people uh, Alexander, because Alexander had a peaceful conquest of of Israel, he didn't he didn't destroy us all and slaughter us all by the by the by, you know by the by the by the thousands. So we said, oh, let's 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 start naming you know Alexander. So all the boys named were named Alexander. They said, oh, Alexander, what's the difference Alexander and Jason? You know, Jason. We find like a Cohen Gadol, a high priest whose name is Jason. You're like, well, that doesn't sound such a Jewish name. I don't know, man. You know, is that a name for a nice Jewish boy, Jason? I don't know, but that's the name of a high priest. Uh, but that that's an example. That's a that's a window into kind of the problem that existed uh, post the uh, uh, Greek occupation of of Israel. Now it's going to reach a crescendo when the Assyrians, uh, under the leadership of Antiochus III, are going to capture Israel in the year 192 before the Arab in the Battle of the Banyas. Uh, and they are, um, and well, Antiochus IV, obviously the son of Antiochus III, they are going, he is going to institute many restrictive, uh, punitive, and prohibitive laws against Judaism. And then he's going to say, okay, you guys want, oh, fantastic, you want to study Torah? You want to give your child a, a circumcision? Fantastic. We'll throw the mother and the baby off a cliff. Right? You want to keep the laws of kosher, laws of nida? Oh, wonderful. We'll chop your head off. You know? uh, and what happens once you attack us in our spiritual lives? We revolt again and again and again. We see this. We'll see this thing with Hadrian, Bar Kokhba revolt of the year 132 of the Common Era. So hundreds of years later, we meet a fellow by the name of Hadrian who mimics the attitude of Antiochus IV. He almost, I, almost to, uh, almost to a word or to a man or something, whatever the line is, right? He, the same laws and the same response. Jews are going to revolt. We meet the Hasmonean revolt. That's the story of Hanukkah. We all know that story uh, fairly well. Uh, now, that is going to be a very long and protracted battle, but eventually the Jewish people are going to reestablish sovereignty over Israel. Wonderful, fantastic, miraculous overthrowing of the mighty empire. Excuse me. Um, so, and that's going to kick off about 100 years of Hasmonean rule. Uh, that's going to start off really, really well with Matthias, Matisio, and his five kids, and the great story of this one family of uh, priests, right? So if you're a priest, you're not from the family of David. Remember that? To be a legitimate king, you have to be from the family of David. They're priests, so they're from, they're from, the, other, they're from the Levites. They cannot be kings. But they decide what the heck we're kind of teens as well. So you have these, you know. Uh, unfortunately, it starts off really well, and then eventually it devolves. Where in the Hasmonean teens were were all Sadducees. So uh, they say, "Oh, we'll be teens." You know, well, who cares? We're not from the family of David. You know. So these, you know, you have these great stories of like Alexander Yanai. What, what a name is that? Like Alexander Yanai. He was the king and the high priest, even though that's an impossibility, uh, you know, in Jewish life. But he says, "I." And then. Because he was also a Sadducee, he did he mocked some of the Jewish traditions. So uh, there's a, there's a mitzvah of the Torah to pour the water. There's a pouring the water ceremony on Sukkot on the holiday of Sukkot. So instead of pouring it on the altar in the temple, he pours it on his feet to mock everyone. And there's thousands of, of Jews on the holiday of of Sukkot. So you know what they did? They all took um, their esrogs, their 
Etros, right? And they started throwing at him. And they almost killed him because all the Jews started pelting him with Etros. Can you imagine? So that's the kind of tension that existed. You have this leadership where it started off with the great Hasmonean dynasty, but eventually they're all Sadducees and they declare themselves kings and they can't be legitimate kings and, and they want to, uh, you know, build these, uh, these wonderful gymnasiums everywhere that we should become more like the Greeks. So what's the deal? You know, so that kind of tension is going to uh, uh, reach a crescendo, really. It's going to take a couple hundred years, but eventually that's going to, you know, the Greeks are gone at that time. You know, uh, the Greeks are gone, we meet the Romans. Uh, we'll see how the, in a second how the Romans end up in Israel. But that is going to fester. We're going to meet so many different factions amongst the Jewish people. What do we say? Israel is the kind of place where you have a little bit of a leash. You have a leash, you know, towards going into idolatry. You have a leash going into fighting and infighting fascism, but it's not a very long leash. Once you spend a couple of hundred years, or 150 years, where there's so many different groups amongst the Jewish people, there's so much senseless hating, there's so much disunity, there's so much lack of respect for, uh, for the traditions, uh, there's a, um, a repudiation of, of the scholars. Uh, and what happens? Temple will be destroyed, exiles coming once more. So this is the beginning of what's going to reach a climax uh, uh, during the times of the Romans. Either way, how the Romans ended up in Israel, we have, as we said, the Hasmonean dynasty, they're controlling Israel, wonderful. It lasts for ni- 99 years. The last queen is a queen whose name is Shlomzion. She was actually the one bright spot of this 99 years of Hasmonean rule. And then she dies, and then her two sons, one of them, his name is uh, uh, Aristobulus, one of them is Hyrcanus, they have a fight over the... Uh, over the throne, shocking, uh, and they decide, you know what, why don't we invite the Romans, the emerging world superpower, in to mediate our dispute. So they invite Pompey in the year 63 before the Common Era, and Pompey says, okay, I'll come in, and he puts his, plants his flag, and they never leave. Okay. <laughs> and they would be there for now, for the next couple of hundred years, uh, the Romans would be in control of Israel. Uh, so, uh, we're going to meet a fellow by the name of Herod. Herod's become the king, but even though all the kings that are going to exist over Israel now are really living, you know, Rome has control, but Rome always favored ruling by proxy. So they would have some very, very pragmatic people to Rome. And they say, you know what, let's have all these new nations that are under our empire, let them self-govern themselves, you know. But we'll have someone who is Rome influence as being the leader. And you know what, we'll take their kids, so Herod, who's the king of Israel, so to speak, but his kids are all living in Rome. And the idea being, we're okay, you know, if you misbehave, then, you know, we're going to lop off your kids' heads. You know, that's, that's very clear. Uh, so uh, Herod is only one of them, but we have a, a long string of, of, of quote-unquote kings, or either kings or proconsuls or, uh, or uh, what's the other name? Um, or, uh, another name, um, uh, of of these of these institutions uh, or individuals that were quote unquote uh, in charge of of uh, in control of 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 Israel, but were actually just uh, proxies for the for the Romans. In the year sixty six, we find a, a great revolt. You know, the Jews Jewish people revolted under the Romans more than anyone else. In the year there was a great revolt. Well, the revolt was over. It was because there's a fellow by the name of Nerva. I think it was Nerva. Uh, who was the procurator. That's what I was looking for. Sorry. Procurator. 
he was a procurator and he deliberately instigated he instigated the Jewish people and the Jewish people revolted and the Romans came and systematically eliminated town by town, city by city, destroying everyone and anything in their wake. Uh, so they start up from northern Israel, the Eastern Seretz, they make their way down to southern Israel. There's so much infighting with the Jewish people, like we said, that reached the crescendos. Everyone just, just the Jewish people are killing themselves. It's just terrible. You know, have different attitudes what to do with what to do with Romans. Eventually, the Romans just capture Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and slaughter everyone they get their hands on. It's an absolute disaster, um, and it's once again the 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 obituary of the Jewish people was almost you know, everyone had written it. You know, it was, it was clear that this was once again uh, they may survive till now and fantastic. Now they're gone. We have the story of Masada, year seventy three. That's the last holdout mm-hmm. of you know that's the great story. We all know that. 73. Uh, but of course, we know the Jewish people are very resourceful, and the more you beat us down, the quicker we, we get up. And about 50 years later, the Jewish people were almost at full capacity. We had almost made up for all our losses, both uh, in, in numbers, but also in, in leadership. And in fact, after the temple, the one positive effect from the temple being destroyed, and the temple being destroyed is, is just one element of the vanquishing of, 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 of the existing life at that time was the fact that no longer did the uh, Sadducees or even the early Christians, the Judeo-Christians, which started off as an offshoot of, of, of Judaism, nor any of the other little uh, offshoots uh, and uh, little schismatic sectarianists that, it, that, that came from the Jewish people, none, none of them had any power. So the Essenes were gone, the Sadducees were gone, the Baitusim were gone, the Bergonim were gone, the um, Sicarium are gone, the Judeo-Christians are gone, everyone's gone. No, they're all gone. They have no influence over the Jewish people. All that's left are the rabbis and the traditional leadership model of the Jewish people. Uh, in the year 117, uh, the emperor Hadrian assumes emperorship, and he has uh, somewhat of a okay relationship with the Jewish people at the time, but eventually he, like we said, he adopts the, uh, the Antiochus, um, uh, his attitude, his plan, his tenets, he makes the same bans against Jewish practice, and once again, when he banned the Jews from practicing Judaism, they revolt. We have the great Bar Kokhba revolt of the year 132, and this is the only time in 200 years of Pax Romana where the Romans were actually bounced out of an entire land. Uh, they have this revolt but under the leadership of Bar Kokhba. Uh, once again, another example of failed leadership. Right? Bar Kokhba was someone who was a great scholar, great warrior, allegedly he was able to uproot a tree while riding on a horse. Tremendous, tremendous warrior. Um, super macho like guy, like you know, that the, the modern day Israelis, they love Bar Kokhba. You know, they would have like, if you want to be a warrior, a soldier for Bar Kokhba, you have to cut off your finger. That's how macho. Uh, so, yeah, so, um, uh, so he's someone who, you know, who, who once again seemed to be the prototype of a Jewish leader, but you know, and Rabbi Akiva, the great scholar of the time, uh, believed in him and thought that he was going to be the Messiah, and they uh, eventually succeeded in getting rid of the of the Romans, and they minted coins, and the coins that we have today in Israel are replicas of the coins that they found from the time of Bar Kokhba. They still find thousands upon thousands of them. Uh, but unfortunately, he got too full of himself, and he uh, and Hadrian came back and absolutely obliterated, obliterated the Jewish people. We have stories of towns being destroyed, and uh, like the Talmud says in recounting these episodes, it says sure. that the 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 rivers of blood 
were uh, were so vast that the Gentile farmers didn't need to irrigate their land for seven years, like just enormous. Uh, uh, and this is, by the way, n- not just in Jewish sources, it's corroborated in secular sources as well. Uh, so that kind of um, is the is the you know the last nail in the coffin of this great period of Jewish life in Israel. Of course, the Jewish people would stay there, uh, but Hadrian, uh, in in his post-war edicts, uh, he uh, changed the name of Israel. It was no longer Israel or Judah. He renamed it Philistinia after that uh, defunct and extinct nation that was sparring with the Jewish people. He renames Jerusalem, Alia Capitolina. He renames this, the biblical city of Shechem, Neopolis, New City. And today the name Shechem, the Arabs call it Nablus, because Arabs translated Pisa, they said Visa instead. So instead of Neopolis, comes Nablus. Uh, but Jewish life in Israel continues not in Jerusalem. It's only in the north now. But even that, it's, 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 it's sparing, sparing Jewish life, or it's minimal Jewish life, in the north, the vast majority of Jews are now in Babylon, where they have been and have continued to exist unmolested since when they went there 500 years earlier. Uh, but this is kind of be, uh, you know, it's there are still some influences of Jewish life in Israel at this time, but it's waning, and its days are numbered. And once you fast forward to the year 500 of the Common Era, there's almost nothing by way of, of, of established Jewish communities in Israel. Now, it's important for us to mention that at no point in time were there no Jews living in Israel. Since 2,000 years ago till today, there has always been at least a small segment of the Jewish people living in Israel. And Israel has always been at the center of Jewish thought and Jewish hopes and Jewish yearning and Jewish prayer, even if it wasn't the center of Jewish life and civilization. But from this time until essentially this, you know, the recent revival, the recent Aliyah that was in the 19th and 20th century, uh, we don't have many communities that are established in Israel. We do have, in the 12th and 13th centuries, uh, the Ramban uh, was the leader of the Jewish community in Jerusalem. You know, we still have today the temple, uh, the Ramban, the synagogue in the Old City, which is subterranean because the, the Muslims said you can't have it overground. We have, of course, in the 16th century, the community that existed in Sfat, uh, northern Israel. Uh, that's like kind of the center of, of Jewish Kabbalah at its zenith was there. Uh, we know that in the uh, 18th century, the Vilna Golan uh, made a trip to Israel, and he, that was going to change everything because he was the number one personality in, 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 in European Jewry. For whatever reason, one of the great mysteries of, of Jewish history is that he aborted his mission, and he turned around and moved back to Vilna. No one knows why. Uh, but his students established the first yeshuv uh, in Jerusalem, uh, after, after his passing, so that's in, in the early, early 19th century. And of course we have uh, uh, the aliyahs of, of, the, of the late 19th century and, and the emergence of Zionism in the late 19th century. That obviously changed it on a national scale, not just on small pockets of Jewish life going on in Israel. Um, uh, Zionism, as we know, uh, is, the, is the brainchild of Theodor Herzl, not that he was the first to think of this idea, as we just spoke about at great length. Jewish sovereignty over Israel, Jewish life in Israel, was something that is central to our religion, of course. But he is the one who crystallized and politicized a yearning that was in the hearts of all Jews, but not in a practical, tangible you know, way. Uh, 
he wrote obviously the book, the Rudenstadt. He uh, convened the Congress, the World Zionist Congress of eighteen twenty seven in Basel, and the subsequent congresses. And, uh, and it's I like to look at Zionism and well, who was this guy Theodor Herzl? So he, he didn't speak Hebrew, he didn't observe any laws, he was ignorant to to you know to Jewish life and practice and philosophy. And in fact, despite him being circumcised and having a bar mitzvah, he gave his only son Hans neither. So obviously, this is not someone who's super, you know, super Jewish. You know, if you don't give your kid a circumcision, like that's a basic. You know, you don't have to be very Jewish to circumcise your kid or give him a bar mitzvah. Uh, and we don't even know if his wife Julie was was Jewish. Uh, we also um, know that in his diaries in 1890, so a mere seven years before of the first uh, World Jewish Congress, uh, World Zionist Congress, he uh, had proposed that the the only way for the Jewish people to be accepted in Europe was mass conversion to Christianity. Obviously, that's not a very Jewish idea. Uh, so, um, despite that kind of profile, he is the most important individual in bringing in this new, renewed Jewish life in Israel. And I'd like to look at this as another example of, of, of leadership and vision coming from a very local source. Part of the anti-Zionist movement that existed amongst um, the religious Jews was the fact that it didn't seem to them likely that restoring Zion, rebuilding the temple, going back to Israel, that would be under the stewardship of someone like Herzl. It doesn't make sense to them. It doesn't make sense that this this is the guy, really? <laughs> this, this, this is how it's going to be done? You know? And um, additionally, you know, there was other um, uh, initial um, resistance to, uh, to Zionism by the uh, early Reform Jews uh, because that it contradicted uh, their uh, platform. You know that Reform Jewry today is obviously very much in favor of Zionism in Israel. But in 1885, uh, Pittsburgh platform crystallized what Reform Judaism actually stands for. One of the themes is, and this is a direct quote, uh, we consider ourselves no longer a nation, but a religious community, and therefore we expect neither return to, to Palestine, nor sacrificial worship under the sons of Aaron, nor the restoration of any of the laws concerning the Jewish state. Uh, so that's why Initially, the resistance to Zionism came from very disparate parts of Jewish life. You have the Reformed Jews who said, no, 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 Berlin is Zionist Jerusalem. We live in America. You know, Cincinnati is, is you know, that's where it's at. We don't believe in going back to Israel. Then you have the religious Jews who do very much believe in going back to Israel, but they say, no, 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 we're going back to Israel, but not with these guys. You know, not with, not with Herzl and, 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 and uh, and uh, the other clown, Max, Max Nordau, and all these guys. These are the guys, really? Guys who don't believe in Torah, don't believe in God. Herzl says, let's go to Uganda. He, he was in favor of establishing a Jewish state in Uganda. He wasn't even thinking about Israel. He was about having a Jewish state. You know? But either way, uh, eventually, I like to look at Israel as being convergence of a lot of, of different attitudes and different Jews, even, and unifying them. I like to look at, at Israel as a, uni- as a unification platform something that almost all Jews agree upon today. Of course, you have the unfortunate trends of young Jews, young um, idealistic or more left-leaning Jews that are more pro-Palestinian. That's very unfortunate. 
or you have a Jew who does not support Israel. Now, I'm not trying to argue that Israel is perfect in every way. I'm not trying to argue that uh, that it doesn't have its mistakes. But either way, it's way, way better than any of its neighbors. Uh, and in the words of Michael Corleone, you don't go against your family. You know, and Israel's our family. And even if they may not be uh, perfect and they may have their issues, but still, you know, Israel's our family, and we support it against its against its enemies. Uh, you know, no questions asked. Uh, and that, coupled with the fact, um, or compounded by the fact that, generally, you know, Israel is the democracy, and Israel is the one that does not target civilians, and Israel is not a terrorist, and Israel lets the Arabs vote, and you know, lets Arabs be citizens, and you know, they are in the right. But even if they weren't in the right, I believe in supporting Israel, despite that, and most Jews do. Uh, and Jews from very disparate backgrounds. And you know what? When Israel was founded in 1948, of course, they have an anti-Palestinian partition plan and the Peel Commission and the whatnot. And eventually, this Israel's, uh, the, uh, Israel's established, but you have 600,000 Jews living in Israel. That's it. What do you have today? You have 6 million Jews. A tenfold increase. Incredible growth because Jews are slowly reconverging back in Israel. When Ezra came back uh, with 42,000, it was, it was a small, it was also about 5% of the Jewish. But eventually, uh, Israel became more and more the place to go for Jews. So to today, it starts over 600,000, now it's 6 million. Ten, tenfold increase, that, this is now the epicenter of, of, of Jewish life, or at least maybe together with America, the center of Jewish, uh, of Jewish life. Uh, of course, Israel is on, I would say ideologically, uh, progressing very nicely. Uh, from being like the Herzlian vision of a totally secular world, and he viewed it to be like more like a Vienna, like a place where you know, fancy ladies wore ball gowns and men wore top hats and mustaches. You know, that's what he envisioned. Um, this kind of utopian, and then to him, it wasn't about Israel at all. Like we said, he would he was happy with the attractive land offered to him uh, in Africa. That would have been fine for him. Uh, but that's how it started off, and in fact, it didn't even have anti-religious, not only it wasn't pro-religious or pro-Judaism or pro-the Jewish view of what Israel ought to be, but it had an anti-view of that. Uh, and it was seen by many of its progenitors as being a replacement for Judaism. Once we have Israel, once we have our land, well, we don't need to have like sons and daughters. Well, yeah, who needs that? that? That sustained us when we were amongst the nations. Now we're in Israel, we don't need that. That was a very common sentiment uh, early on in uh, in, 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 in Zionism and, and in Israel's history. And then today, when Shimon Peres goes to speak uh, in, in, the, in the United Nations, he puts on a yarmulke the size of an umbrella on his head. You know? So why? He doesn't wear a yarmulke every day because he is showing that the Jewish nation is about the Jewish people. And, uh, and, and there's a link between the Jewish nation, the Jewish state, and the Jewish vision for that state. Well, he says that when I when I'm representing Israel, I'm I'm Jewish, you know. I, I think that's that that's obviously it, it, it's just an anecdote, but that's I think there's a trend in that direction. Uh, of course, we have had our skirmishes with our neighbors. Of course, the War of Independence of um, 1948, the Sinai Campaign of 1956. Uh, 19 years after the founding of the State of Israel, we have uh, uh, the uh, Five Arab nations ganging up on Israel. We have Gamal Abdul Nasser uh, declaring that his clear stated goal is the destruction of Israel. Everyone was pretty sure, all the Americans, everyone who had a foreign passport left Israel. Everyone was sure it was over. 
in, in public parks in, in Israel, they dug 10,000 graves to anticipate all the dead that were going to be happening from the impending war. And as we all know, this was a uh, miracle, like, you know, because in six days they destroyed them. You know, the first day, the first day they destroyed 800 planes, 800 Egyptian planes. First they went and bombed the airports and the runways, and then they bombed all the planes. And Israel sent every single one, besides for 12, of its, of, of its, of its air force, and they, they arrived in Egypt, and when they arrived, there were only four Egyptian planes in the air, and none of them were military planes. Remarkable, you know? And overnight, it went from, from death, doom, and destruction, where, where, where you're all going to be slaughtered on the streets, to jubilation, you know? And then they went and they took care of the, uh, of the Syrians. Like, they literally, they finished up shop, they destroyed every single plane. And once, once they had that complete air, uh, air control over, uh, over, over, over Egypt, then they moved on to Syria, and they bombed all their planes. And then uh, Nasser calls up King Hussein and Jordan and says, Dude, Tel Aviv is, is burning. Why don't you hop on board? And then, and, and then Levia Stroll says, This is not a good idea. Don't, don't join the war. And Jordan says, You know what? Screw it. We're joining the war. And then we, van- we destroy the Jordanians as well. They capture, they capture the old city. And suddenly we, the, 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 the land of what the state of Israel was before uh, June 5th, nineteen. 19- 67. And then only a mere six days later, it increased, I think, by like fivefold. Mm-hmm. They had the, obviously the Golan Heights, uh, the entire West Bank, mm-hmm. uh, along with yeah. the old city of, of Jerusalem, and the Sinai Desert. You know, it just expands just like that overnight. Miracle. You know, but what happens when you get pompous? Right? What happened, what happened a mere seven years, uh, six years later? Unfortunately, uh, the Yom Kippur War caught the Israelis by surprise, and that was, despite it being a resounding Israeli victory at the end, but it was very painful. It was uh, the worst war in, in Israel with regards to casualties. They were caught with their pants down, literally. Not literally, not literally, but they were caught um, uh, colloquially with their pants down, not ready for that. Uh, they were destroyed. It was really bad. Um, but eventually they regrouped and recouped and you know, they won a decisive victory once again. Uh, and then in 1977, a fellow by the name of Menachem Begin was elected to be the prime minister. And that was very important because after 29 years of leftist control over Israel, this was the first time that someone on the right side, the right wing of the political spectrum, uh, had uh, had gained a, uh, a majority, which, which I think kind of is... But whatever you may think about politics, uh, it, it was a landmark uh, uh, moment in, in in the Israeli democracy. Uh, we have other campaigns, the eighties, of course. We can get into the whole negotiations of the coalition of the eighty of the eighties, and when they had the dual governments. Let's skip that. Uh, of course, in nineteen seventy nine, the Israelis signed a peace treaty with Egypt. Um, the Brave and courageous leader of Egypt at the time, I thought that at the time was Sadat. Mm-hmm. Uh, he flew into Tel Aviv and he met Begin and he gave speeches in Israel and they made a peace treaty which was beneficial for both nations. Uh, Egypt is now, they received the second most uh, uh, foreign funding from any country. They have had since, since the 70s, they've had uh, relative stability and prosperity. They're doing much better than, uh, than, uh, than let's say, the Syrians or the Lebanese or whatnot, they're doing fantastically well. 
course, then had their issues as well. And Sadat paid for this with a bullet in his head in 1981. Uh, but that's, you know, it's, it's remarkable where the, the, the leader of the Arab world, the Egyptians, they, uh, they uh, recognize Israel. Uh, they signed a peace treaty with Israel. Uh, and they have no intention of reneging that. Even during the half hour with the Muslim Brotherhood had control of Egypt, they never reneged upon that deal because it was a good deal for everyone. Uh, and of course, in 1993, they signed a peace treaty, treaty with Jordan, uh, with King Hussein, and that's wonderful. Unfortunately, in, in uh, 1995, Rabin was assassinated. It's a low point because, despite what you may think, and despite the Oslo Accords, and despite whatever, we don't we don't descend to those low. That's not that's not that's not a Jewish response. We don't we don't do those kind of things. Uh, and in 1996, the Israeli-born Benjamin Netanyahu was elected as prime minister. Uh, and in fact, going into the election, everyone was sure that Shimon Peres, who his, was the opposition, was going to win. But uh, arguably, due to the uptick in terrorist activity uh, and the back-to-back bombings of buses in Jerusalem seems like that swayed the nation, and the nation went to sleep on the left and woke up on the right. And for the first time, someone who was actually born in Israel became the Prime Minister Netanyahu. He lasted as nine, then we met uh, to, to, to 1999. Uh, then we had Barack and then Sharon, and I think we arrived at our destination, right? Mm-hmm. The rest is... Uh, well, of course, we have uh, the 2000 uh, where Barack... Left uh, unilaterally, uh, left Lebanon, and that seems to have not really worked out that well. Two thousand five, we unilaterally left, disengaged from Gaza. That didn't really work out so well. All we got in return uh, were Qassam rackets and whatnot, and Hamas. But either way, I, I look at Israel today as being very vital, very vibrant, center of Jewish life, a center of Jewish focus, uh, and you know what? It's growing rapidly. This is where the Jewish growth is. Unfortunately, in America, uh, you know, the Jews in America are, 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 unfortunately, they're selling out. You know, they're they're becoming less and less Jewish progressive. That even though I think that at the extremes, at the polls, uh, Jews in America are moving to- more towards Jewish uh, life and Jewish vibrancy, but we're losing a lot. You know, assimilation and intermarriage and you know, Jews abandoning Judaism is a very uh, unfortunate uh, but very common trend in America, but I like to look at Israel as as much less, much less, well, not as religious, I wouldn't say religious, but the more Jewish, Uh, yes, and there's, it's not, we're we're not, we're not there yet, but I feel like we're getting closer and closer, like, as an example, I say, you know, like, um, just the, the influence, you know, just there's a, there's a vote now, there's a bill that's, that's been, uh, been tossed around the Knesset in Israel regarding it's called the Israel the state law whatever some which is it's declaring Israel as a Jewish state and using the Torah as inspiration for for Israeli law and making Hebrew the official state language and etc cetera, etc cetera. I think that's a, a nice uh, example of a trend towards Israel getting closer and closer to uh, to the dream of what Israel ought to be and what eventually will be uh, it's it's a process clearly it's a process we've come a long way. We still have ways to go, uh, but uh, but I think it's it's a very positive. I like to look at it very.
very positively. It's, you know, there's a convergence of a lot of different kinds of people. And even Zionism, you know, Zionism, we had the Herzl Zionism, we had the Jews, the religious Jews, that this was their yearning, and that they kind of came together. In Israel today, it's, 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 yeah, it's different kinds of Jews, and they're coming together. You know, they have their, of course, they have their fights and whatnot. But all in all, if you take it all, big picture, it seems like it's moving very uh, gradually, but very consistently towards being the model of what it eventually will be. That's that, everyone. Thank you all for coming. Any questions? How did Abraham Exit. Too late. <laughs> 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 I'll give you a little hint. The way Abraham, the way, the way the Midrash says it, it says that Abraham, from where did Abraham study the whole Torah? From himself he learned. Abraham was able to tap into the power of a soul that already had the Torah pre-programmed in it. That's the answer. That's the answer.